Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 124 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is the inspiring Melanie Klein. Melanie Klein is a writer, a speaker, a professor of sociology and women's studies at Santa Monica College. She's also the co-founder of the Yoga and Body Image Coalition, and she has edited two anthologies, one with Anna Guest Jelly, which is called Yoga and Body Image, and her most recent work, which is Yoga Rising, 30 Empowering Stories from Yoga Renegades for Everybody. I want to just give a quick shout out and thank you to Catherine Budig for connecting us. I heard Melanie on Catherine's podcast, Free Cookies, and I actually DM'd Catherine and was like, oh, that was a great interview. Melanie's great. And then I I believe Catherine suggested to Melanie to come on my show. So I'm so happy that she was here. And we just have a good old chat about yoga and body image. I learned so much from her. She's really articulate, really thoughtful, and she's a longtime yogi. One takeaway that I will just never forget is this whole concept of the body project, which is, you know, something we, we've all been conditioned to in our lives, which is to focus our energy, our attention, our self-worth, and quite frankly, our finances on you know, how we look and does it measure up to the expectation that society has for us and that we have for ourselves. I've just been running that concept over and over again in my mind and thinking about all the years and time that I've spent on my body project. And am I ready and willing to completely give it up or to remember to give it up over and over again and to focus on other things? And I think the other thing that's so interesting about this Melanie talks about is that this type of conditioning on young girls and women has not always existed. So there is a way out. If you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to rate and review on iTunes. I appreciate it so much. It really, really helps people find the podcast. Also, Jason has a few more dates uh, in 2018, a few more travel dates. He will be in Syracuse, New York in early November, also Seattle, Washington in early November, and then he starts his two-week teacher training module in Hong Kong in late November, early December. If you want more details about any of these programs, you can go to our website, jasonyoga.com slash schedule, and then click through for all of the good juicy details. And for those of you who will be in Maui on retreat, I can't wait to see you soon. I'm so excited. Enjoy the interview. So Melanie, I would love to start out by asking you to share your own body relationship history and and how it's led you to where you are today and the work that you do. Thanks for asking that question. I I love to share the story because I know that it is a common story. And I think that is actually what is the most extraordinary part about it is how incredibly common it is that as a girl growing up with a mother and, and a grandmother and you know other women in my family who are very much caught up in what's called the body project. Their attention, their focus too often turned to what they looked like rather than what they felt like to what they looked like rather than what they could accomplish or what they could do because they had very much internalized the narrative that their approximation to the beauty ideal was uh, in a direct association with their worth Mm -hmm. and resulted in their self-esteem. So, you know, we have these things not only 
explicitly told to us in terms of what is desirable, what is acceptable, what we should strive for. But of course, you know, as children, we're constantly watching and we're learning, we're hearing their conversations, we are picking up, you know, their own sort of cues via body language, uh, and so on. And so that entire combination of experiences really led me to internalize the idea that the best thing I could possibly be is pretty. And part of that also meant being thin and being small and that that would make me not only desirable for uh, a love relationship, which very often, you know, these things are coupled. It's like, if you're attractive, then you're worthy of love. And girls, mm. we learn that our beauty and, you know, the pursuit of romance really should be at the top of our agenda. So that became a very serious pursuit for me, but also at the expense of other things so that, you know, even if you're smart, even if you're funny, even if you're capable, that somehow those things don't have the same kind of impact unless you're also attractive at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so that became my, my body narrative refrain is how can I change myself? How can I make myself over? If I change myself, you know, how will that ultimately make my life better than it already is? So there was no living in my body in the moment. There was no acceptance of my body in the moment. In fact, there was really no focus on the present moment at all. It was a constant projection into the future. And there was also a constant, you know, sense of lamenting the past and what I've done, what I've eaten, what I didn't do right, and then looking into the future. And so the entire connection to being myself, the truth of myself in that moment in time did not exist for me. And I think that, you know, those of us who have yoga and mindfulness practices are clearly aware that when we have that disconnection, that is also usually our greatest sense of uh, dissatisfaction. Uh, it is uh, the source of our loneliness. It is the source of our, I would say, disconnection when we don't have the ability to be present with what is. It's beautiful the way you just said that. And I can I can relate to it so well. And I actually, as you were talking, I remembered that I can remember a time when I did live in my body, when I mm -hmm. wasn't self-conscious, when I wasn't <laughs> focused on all of those things. And then there was a like a switch flipped. Mm. Can you remember that too? Like, do, do you remember when that was for you? Yeah, I actually have two different moments. One is I can relate to being a young girl. And uh, what you just described is very poignant for me and definitely resonates is being in the joy of life in the moment, being in my body, in the world, in that particular moment in time, and sort of just luxuriating in the possibility of being alive and mm -hmm. having the experiences of being alive, all the sensations and, you know, that we can through our sight and our touch and our smell and so on taste. That was something I experienced in girlhood very often. And I remember how that felt in my body. And then I also know that, you know, prior to puberty, that is when usually we actually see, statistically speaking, the confidence level in girls uh, plummets dramatically yes. around the age of 10. And part of that is because there is a lot going on with the body. And we also don't have, I think it's changed a bit since I was a young girl, but still there isn't enough focus on a girl's capacity 
you know, a girl's intellect, all of the things beyond the body. And they learn more and more that those things become important. And as they begin to focus more on these aesthetics, we see that there's a direct correlation in the decrease in the sense of joy. There is, you know, the pattern of them making themselves smaller, dumbing themselves down, Mm -hmm. getting caught up in what it means to be pretty and, you know, chasing that sort of ephemeral ideal constantly. And sometimes it takes a very long time to, to come back full circle. And for me, coming back full circle was sometime in my late 20s. So I think almost, you know, 20 years later since my girlhood. And there was a moment in Brian Kest's yoga class where I was in a shoulder stand and uh, I had uh, my yoga pants at the time. There were no like official yoga pants. So they were just pants that I could do yoga in. (laughs) They fell around my thighs because they were just loose pants. And so I was looking at my thighs and for the first time I had this awareness of like, oh, wow, I'm okay with what they look like. Like I was just in a neutral position, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I wasn't like, oh, they look amazing, but I wasn't like, oh, they look terrible. It was just neutral. There was a sense of body peace and acceptance. And that was very striking for me in that moment because I recognized very consciously that I could not remember a memory like that in any time in the recent past. And so that really stood out for me. And that was the moment in my adult life that I sort of my first coming back to how can I exist in my body, not even so much in, you know, full joy and embracement, but how about let's start with just a level of tolerance and acceptance for what is. Let's move away from this one end of the spectrum of incredible self-loathing, disappointment, punishment, guilt, which is where I existed for a very long time. And instead of thinking, I'm going to go all the way from there to joy and love, how about just coming into balance and be like, I'm just here. I just was in my body. I came into that state of being and noticing. And that in itself was incredibly profound. Like, hey, you know what? I can actually be in my body and not completely rip myself apart. I can be in my body and not entertain a thousand negative thoughts in a row. Mm-hmm. There is, it is actually possible for me to be in my body and have a degree of comfort. And so that was a wonderful moment that, you know, opened up the possibility. It was a reminder. This does exist. I love how you mentioned the quote, quote unquote, the body project. Mm-hmm. I've never really thought of it that way, but holy crap, there's just so much (laughs) truth in that. Like, wow. Like, yes. I mean, women are so conditioned to just feel like so much time and energy has to go into fixing ourselves and making ourselves acceptable. (laughs) And so much thought goes into that. And it sounds like part of what you're talking about is the acceptance of just what is sort of like takes the energy out of constantly focusing on that project so the energy can go elsewhere. Oh my goodness. Exactly. And I love that you immediately saw that because that really is the crux of my work, to be honest, is it may appear on the surface that, you know, I've spent 20 plus years talking about contemporary body image politics and how can we have a more positive uh, and affirming body image when that's really just the surface of my work. 
that is really an entry point for me. It's sort of, I call that, you know, the gatekeeper, if you will, to our full sense of empowerment and liberation. That if we can free up all of the time, money and energy that we spend on the body project, then we can, you know, channel that into other areas of our life. And I, I do want to actually mention the term, the body project is, is not my own. Um, it is a book if anyone is interested in reading, by Joan Jacobs Brumberg. It's called The Body Project, An Intimate History of American Girls. Oh, wow. And I should definitely read that one. Yes. And <laughs> what, I, what I love about it is she really does a longitudinal study. So she's looking at diaries and letters from young girls over, you know, I think like a hundred year time frame. And one of the things that becomes very clear is that the body project was not always a focal point for girls and women, that this is something that is very much socio-historical. So I'm a sociologist and women's studies professor. In addition to being an author and an empowerment coach, I bring it all together and I uh, rely on all of the academic and activist work that I've done to um, funnel that into, let's say, people who may not be in my classrooms or maybe people who aren't even my one-on-one clients or, you know, people who aren't activist spaces. I want to be able to take this information and really send it out to everyone because everyone needs this. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about the body project, right, you don't even have to go into any kind of lengthy explanation just in the way that you immediately like, oh, that makes sense. Right? Yeah, that yeah, is. Yeah. But again, that is something that has not always been the case. And she points out that, you know, at other points in history, not that there weren't gendered expectations for girls and women and for boys and men, but what those expectations were, were different. And if you look at things like the advent of honestly having mirrors in the home hmm. or having clothing that was ma- mass manufactured where you had to begin to impose a sizing system. All of these different things began to shift the focus onto women's bodies in a new way and also on different parts of the body. So I say this because it's not inevitable. It's not natural. It's not inherent that girls and women are caught up in this body project. It is something that is absolutely learned. And the wonderful thing about that is because it is something that is learned, it can be relearned. We can begin to restructure our relationship with our bodies. We can reimagine the culture. We can reframe our personal narrative. None of this is, you know, encoded in our genetics that we tend to feel small or tend to feel insecure or that we get in our own way or that we should, you know, meet a particular ideal. Even the idea of beauty is a constantly changing construct. I mean, if we think about, you know, the mainstream standards of beauty today in 2018, it's very different than in 1998, than in 1978, than in 19, you know, 58, 1858. It's always changing. And because we are social creatures constantly engaging in this culture, we take in all of these images, all of these expectations, these value systems that have been constructed, and they become part of our own identity. And we begin to think that that's actually who we are. We sort of forget where the culture ends and we begin. We internalize all of those social expectations. And then it has very real impact on how we treat ourselves, how we move into the world, and also ultimately the ways in which we limit ourselves. So how did you make the leap from being a professor of sociology and feminism and being a yoga practitioner 
to being <laughs> one of the co-founders of the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. How did that come together for you? From the get-go, it just made sense. <laughs> it just was like, how could it not? I discovered um, sociology and feminism when I started community college in 1994. I'd been like gallivanting around the globe and had like dropped out of college and didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I came back, I went to the local community college and took this amazing sociology of women's class. And I felt like my entire world had just been ripped open and all of a sudden made sense. All of the experiences that I had had as a girl and a woman, the questions that I had had, all of a sudden were explained in a way that allowed me to connect my personal experience to the structures and systems, right? So that was mind blowing. I had this very deep intellectual understanding of my world and myself. And I felt almost as if the blinders had been taken off. Uh, conversations sounded different to me. I read billboards differently. I listened to the news differently. You know, just mm. everything had a new filter. And then a couple of years later in 1996, I started a, a Kundalini yoga practice very randomly, started by taking a class in this old warehouse by the railroad tracks at a uh, community extension course because there weren't a lot of yoga studios at the time at all. And really didn't know what the heck was going on in that class, but I just knew that I needed to keep going back. So I did that. And then about a year later, I wanted to practice more. So I was looking for a home studio. And like I said, it was very difficult to find. And so I ended up in Brian Kess's class in Santa Monica and it was nothing like Kundalini yoga. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty different. Was, yes. It was like nothing I'd experienced before, but his rhetoric really resonated with me. The things that he talked about as he taught, I felt like he was reading my mind and my heart. There was the constant dialogue about not comparing and competing, um, not looking in the mirror, not looking at the people next to you on the mat. Really, he started breaking down all of those constraints that we see as normal. He began to really... Uh, break apart a lot of the fitness rhetoric that we grow up with in this culture about no pain, no gain, and mm -hmm. you know pushing past your boundaries. That I was hearing things about moderation and and being gentle and listening to your body, and you know not only not comparing, competing with the people next to you, but not comparing and competing with yourself from the day before or from five years ago or ten years ago, and that really, I mean, spoke to me deeply personally, but it also connected to, in many ways, all of the things that I had been studying about how mainstream culture works, dominant paradigms, and coupled with that, having a practice where I could actually try those things on. So for example, what does it look like to uh, approach the practice with the ethic of you know, self-compassion? What does it mean to practice where you listen to your body? What does it mean to practice gentleness, body kindness, and moderation? You know, I'm a very cerebral person. And those things were just sort of intellectual concepts for me that I understood and that were very mentally liberating for me. But when I got on the mat, I was actually shown how to practice those things, mm. what it means to embody those things. So there was a very clear connection from the get-go that 
the sociological imagination and feminist consciousness and my yoga practice were really the same thing. They were about consciousness raising and then allowing that sort of revelation or the revelations, those new awarenesses to shape the way that I moved in the world, to shape the way that I showed up for myself, the work that I did. And so those things together really shaped the trajectory of my entire personal life and career since. And when it was time for the first book that I co-edited with Anna Guest Jelly to come out, which is Yoga and Body Image, it also made sense to me to create a community platform where individuals doing this kind of work or interested in this kind of work could aggregate their voices to really truly become a force for social change as opposed to working on their own and possibly the, you know, the various disparate corners of the globe that they occupy. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the, that was the element of, I would say, activism and advocacy that then came in as well. It's like, it's not enough to just talk about it and then implement it in our own life. How do we then come together as communities and how do we create collective change? I'm really impressed that you didn't bring your body project into the yoga room with you that you kind of because I think I think I did you know I feel like yoga healed me in so many ways emotionally and mentally but I don't think I realized until probably my daughter was born because that was just like the grand awakening for me having a kid mm. And also having a girl and just like not wanting to perpetuate patterns. Like you said, you listen to your family and it was the same for me. Like it was so just the thing of the times for my mom and her friends to like cut their own bodies down. And I knew when my daughter was born, I didn't want to do that. And I was like, whoa, it's still in there. You know what I mean? Like I can't do this anymore. This is just so ridiculous. And I think exhausting. Too. Yeah, 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 exhausting. And I think for me, like there was in part the body project perpetuated in yoga for me because the people who I looked up to in the yoga world were like these incredibly like they were just these specimens, you know, mm -hmm. like I can remember when I started at Yoga Journal, like seeing photos of Richard Freeman, like seeing photos of a man and just being like, whoa, that's possible in the human body. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And the same with Patricia Walden and same with Matias Rati and all these people. And therefore, because my body didn't look like that, I still thought it was something like to aspire to outside of myself. Absolutely. No, I relate. And but I do want to make one minor correction is I did carry my body project into my yoga practice. It was, I think, specifically that I landed in exactly the right room with the right teacher. And my experience of the practice was, in many ways, I've come to learn different than many others. I just assumed that everybody was getting the same dose of medicine, right? <laughs> and it wasn't until I looked beyond my little home studio here in Santa Monica that I went, oh, does it look like this everywhere? But because I had 
made the connection between the potential of the the practice and reframing our relationships with our body that I had this um, deep call to share that perspective with everyone, which has obviously informed my work. But again, I did bring my body project in there. It was just that I constantly had the reminders. And if anybody has ever taken a Brian Kest yoga class at any point in their life, and then maybe gone back 10 years later, five months later, he has been saying the Hmm. same shit for 30 years. And you know what? He can't say it enough. I am grateful that I heard the same thing over and over and over again, because it really required that level of repetition like, you know, almost uh, a raindrop on a stone Mm -hmm. to begin to wear it away. I do believe that if I had had a different teacher that had a different perspective, that would have ultimately given me a different perspective. I just landed in the place that I needed to land in. And he listen, if anybody listens to Brian Kess too, he's working out his shit all the time. <laughs> like he very channeled and he comes from a very intense fitness background. He was a bodybuilder. He was very much absorbed into the ideal. He was all about muscularity, low body fat, equating masculinity with toughness, invulnerability, size. And he talks about that in the first book, Yoga and Body Image. He talks about how he learned those things from his own father and superheroes and, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and how he essentially, it took him a very long time and he still battles it to break that down. And, you know, his own father sort of left that illusion and moved to Hawaii and became a yoga teacher. And that is where Wow. Where Brian had his own experience. Oh, yeah. I didn't yeah, know it, that. That's such a great story. And Brian and his brother became yoga teachers, right? Yes. Wow. Yes. And for Brian, you know, he was a rabble rousing youth in Detroit, and his mother was just like, oh my God, all these crazy boys. And yeah. he was sent to Hawaii, and his father said, fine, if you're going to be here, because Brian dropped out of, I think, his sophomore year in high school and never went back. His dad was like, okay, that's fine, but you have to practice yoga every day. And so he did. And he started really restructuring the way he looked at the world. And in his essay in Yoga and Body Image, it's called Like Father, Like Son. He talks about, you know, how his father became disillusioned with the American dream and all the things that were happening. And he bailed and completely restructured his life and went into yoga practice and lived in Hawaii, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And Brian essentially did the same thing. You know, he began to reject all of these external constraints that were put upon him that ultimately made him miserable. And so he was constantly sharing that in class over and over again. And I could relate so much, even though I was a woman and I did not have, you know, a bodybuilding background, I had been a gym rat and I was constantly trying to modify my body to be something other than it was, or to fit a certain ideal. And so to hear him talk and make that intellectual connection, something I'd already been learning in sociology and women's studies into the practice, it just made all the sense to me. And so those days where I would come in there and I would come into that comparison mentality or the days that I would come in there and, you know, I had an off day or what I call a bad body image day. What made all the difference was to actually feel what it was like to be in my body. And over time, I could let go of what it looked like, or I could be less attached to what it looked like because I knew ultimately the gold for me 
was what it felt like. And that I learned from Brian as well, mm. where he would say, you know, everybody wants to look good because they think it's going to make them feel good. But actually, if we just go to feeling good, then we radiate this incredible energy. We radiate beauty and kindness. We become magnetic and it doesn't really matter what we look like because again, the pursuit of an aesthetic ideal is to simply get the good feelings that we can access immediately without going through all those other hoops. Hoops that, by the way, can be incredibly toxic, damaging, and completely counter to our health in the first place. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, so wise. You know, as I was mentioned before <laughs> we started the interview that I did one, I think I did one workshop with him years ago at a conference. And I liked him immediately because he still sounds like a guy from Detroit. You know, my husband is from De from near Detroit. He's from Slovenia, Ohio. There, it's just he's very like direct, yes, unabashed, <laughs> unafraid to, you know, throw people off a little bit and to catch people yes. off guard. He's not all like hearts and flowers and bliss. Uh -huh. And I really, really like that about him. But I just I had no idea like the depth of his teaching I, because I for some reason have never been back to see him. Mm -hmm. That's great. He has a lot of incredible wisdom to share. And I have to say that over the last, you know, 24 years that I've known him, I, I never, you know, stop being amazed at how what he has to share still resonates and adds, you know, additional layers of depth to my own knowing. A few years ago when we were putting his online teacher training together and we were recording his discourse, you know, I, I was there because I had put together the bullet points for all of the articles he had written over the years for his teacher training. And we were translating those into, again, small discourse videos. And I said to him, like, oh, my gosh, I have heard these things so many times over the years, because I have to say there was a period of, I don't know, seven years where I was in class five, six days a week uh -huh. over and over. And I said, it still is so magnificent. It resonates so deeply. And it is because his wisdom continues to grow because his practice is real. Mm -hmm. He does never teaches a class without having had his own morning practice. He goes directly into the experience, into the sensation. It never has become a heady or intellectual thing. It's always a lived thing. And I think that's why the teachings are so alive and dynamic and they resonate so deeply is because they are so incredibly lived. He is accessing that information from a very deep place. And that really set an example for myself in terms of, you know, what do I have to offer? How do I offer it? And what spirit do I offer it? So whether I'm, you know, teaching in college classrooms or I'm working one-on-one -on -one with clients or if I'm doing consulting work or if I'm writing or creating some form of media, it really is coming from the deepest place of my being, which is a combination of all the things that I've studied and learned and experienced and practiced and I bring that all together and then offer it in a really wholehearted way because I know that's going to create the biggest impact. Mm, that's so nice. Yeah. And that's what you and so many people together have done with the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. So I'm wondering, what was it when you when you started the organization, which was, I think, 2014, right? Mm -hmm. So just a few yeah. years ago, I feel like you've already had a big visible <laughs> impact on the community, which is great. And so what did you anticipate and like what's been surprising? What's the growth been like? What's been great about it? What's been tough about it? 
You know, honestly, if I'm really honest, none of it has surprised me because when the hit came in to do this, it was so clearly a call for something large to come through me that it didn't even feel like me because if it had been just me, I can tell you I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> because at the time, first of all, to go back, I mean, granted, yes, the coalition was formed in January of 2014. Yoga and Body Image, the book came out in fall of 14, but Anna and I started working on that project in 2011. And I started writing in yoga spaces in about 2010. You know, if we go back, it's actually been about almost nine years at this point. But at that time, I had never thought about the idea of writing a book. I had never thought about the idea of creating a platform this way even though I had been part of social justice movements for a very long time, but I, I, I never saw myself as leading something, founding something, creating something, writing something. I still lived with my own limitations. Uh, the idea of writing a book, I remember, if you told me 20 years ago, seemed so arduous. It seemed so daunting. <laughs> it seemed so impossible. How could someone like me do something like that? And when I met Anna, she had written a piece at the time for Elephant Journal called uh, The Rise of the Curvy Yogini. And I had published my piece on yoga, feminism, and body image, I think about five or six months earlier. So it was a it was a space where there weren't a lot of voices having this conversation at the time. So it was easy for us to find each other since you know, there were so few of us. And when I read her background, I went, oh my goodness, she had done work at a college in a women's resource center. It was clear to me that she was not only living the practice, but she had some, you know, deep sort of intellectual understanding of the issues around what we were seeing, especially growing in the yoga community at that time. And so I reached out to her and after a few conversations, I just got this download about having a book. And I said, we need to do a book. And it was very clear to me that it wasn't going to be just us, that this needed to be something collective that we needed to elevate and share the voices of multiple experiences of people from many backgrounds. And there was zero doubt on my part, <laughs> which I, again, I say that that is, that was not typical of me at the time. Had it been something that just came from my smaller self or just the intellect, I would have probably shut that, that down immediately. <laughs> like, oh, this isn't possible. Here's a hundred reasons why I can't do this. But it came from a very deep place inside of me. And, you know, if we talk about creative source energy, mm -hmm. it's exactly what it is. So I didn't get my own way because I wasn't really leading it. I just sort of went with it. And so then, the you know, when we were sending the manuscript for final publication, the idea of having really grassroots on the ground organization to implement, talk about and share many of the themes in the book seemed so obvious to me. I had no hesitation, went forward with that. The idea for our first What a Yogi Looks Like campaign and the video and the photo shoot and the t-shirts, all of that came to me actually at a yoga journal conference where hmm. I, I had been asked to speak on a panel with Yoga Journal and Lululemon on contemporary body image politics. And after the panel, I was having dinner and the panel was actually uh, prompted by Off the Mat Into the World. Sean Korn had mm -hmm. said, hey, let's create this practice of leadership series. So that's what that was. And at dinner, I remember going, oh, my God, we really, geez, even here, I feel so incredibly uncomfortable. Even though they've just had this panel, I feel so incredibly out of place um, huh. at this conference. 
And I really wanted to change the representation because that's what we had been talking about. And for me, coming from a social justice background, coming from a media literacy background, I just went, well, screw it. Like, if you're not going to feature people like this in your magazine and you still have questions or qualms about it, then I'm just going to create those images and I'm going to disrupt the mainstream narrative and didn't question it at all. And within a couple (laughs) months, the, the video was made. The first photo shoot was made. Micheline Berry, Halakuri were in it. I mean, um, we had all of these amazing people. And as soon as that video went out and, you know, we started getting press, it was just like wildfire. People had been hungry for this for a very, very, very long time. So it just grew exponentially very quickly. I had just sort of in many ways tapped into what a lot of people were thinking and feeling and talking about, you know, on their own and given it a public platform and then created a community in which they could come together and find solidarity, find inspiration, find the possibility of collaboration. So in terms of, was that surprising? No. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) I just knew it was all right in terms of, you know, any negativity or things that went wrong. I don't, I don't see any of that. I I feel like it's all been wonderful. It's all been perfect. I continue (laughs) to keep that platform alive, doing blog posts, doing, you know, um, for example, features right now, a couple months ago, we did an international day of yoga challenge with yoga international and the accessible yoga group founded by Jeevana Heyman and the quote winners. We said, let's just go ahead and have a feature about their work and who they are on our own blog and then feature them on social media. So we continue to constantly churn out stories and images and experiences from everyday yogis, because that's what a yogi looks like, everyday people, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, just create the opportunity to have their voices elevated and to have people's experiences affirmed. Well, good for you. I mean, seriously, like in all sincerity, I know what you were up against because, uh, you know, having been at Yoga Journal for so long. And I mean, I have so many thoughts, but one thing is what you're talking about, that sort of channeling it just from source. It's like you kind of knew at that point it wasn't about you and your ego. It was like about the collective. And when you have that gut sense and you just drive forward with it and you don't even think like, is there a business plan with this? Is there this? Is there? It's like, yeah, that is people feel that and people people know that and and having been at yoga journal and you know I emailed you before this and said like I know now looking back because of the work that you and others have done that we did miss the mark with representation like I somehow at the time while I know many of the reasons why at the time it it was not something that we prioritized enough but like part of that was just that we were part of this big organization with so many layers and with so many like obligations and so many financial ties. And to me, I'm actually just so happy that this has come from the community and from in a, in a grassroots way, because it just feels like it's actually going to affect real change. And, and it has, and, and you know, that even if it is not as fast or as like, wide reaching as everyone would like for it to be it is happening and 
I'm just wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Like, what do you see now that you feel great about? And like, where do you want to keep going? First, I will say that the recognition that it's a larger machine is so important. I think what people have to understand is that it's not just a group of somehow malicious or ignorant individuals who are just, you know, making these choices to do X, Y, or Z, that there are a lot of moving parts and having a background in studying the media, how to create alternative forms of media, as well as understanding how mainstream media operates. I would often tell times tell people that, hey, listen, there's a lot more going on than you might assume. And so this takes a little bit more work. And we have to not only look at, well, what's happening at this one particular magazine, but how does this magazine or this institution or this, you know, corporation, whatever it happens to be, fit into the larger cultural narrative. Mm -hmm. In many ways, what's, you know, was very obvious to me about 15 years ago was as yoga became more culturally acceptable because it definitely in the 90s when I started practicing, it was still weird. It was a weird thing. It was totally <laughs> not, counterculture. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not weird anymore. And the reality though is yoga practice is totally subversive. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I still stand by that, you know, very, very strongly because it's, it's asking you to restructure, reframe, become conscious when everything else in the culture is doing the opposite. So it's still a subversive practice. The difference is as it became more well-known, less weird, it inevitably passed through the filter of the mainstream culture. And so at that point, I started to see the commodification, the objectification. Um, I also saw that, you know, commercials and advertisements began to, you know, use certain symbols and imageries and lifestyles associated with yoga and the idea of the yoga body as selling points. And so for me, it wasn't even so much like, oh, let's let's somehow attack this one thing or just talk about this. It's like, no, let's let's actually have a conversation about how these things are created and how this is just an extension of the larger trend. So that was one thing. The other thing is that a lot of times, and I and I feel especially there when I had that conversation at that panel, you know, all the people that I worked with, but maybe five different women, they all looked the same. They were all approximately the same age with the same hair color, similar body type, same race, ethnicity. And I went, well, I mean, like if there's no diversity behind the lens or in the, you know, editorial room, there's not going to be any diversity represented. And it's maybe not done out of like, we're going to keep people, you know, no, from, yeah, from yeah. on the cover. It was more like, well, this is what my world looks like. And, you know, listen, I live in Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles as well as in Germany. My world didn't look that way. I grew up in a very you know, a diverse community. I went to diverse schools. I have always taught diverse students. So my norm has always been divor diversity. Mm -hmm. But I started to really look around. I go, well, hey, listen, depending on what part of the country you live in or what part of the world, maybe that's not what it looks like. And so your default setting is the world looks like this. Mm -hmm. People look like this. And so it's not out of any malicious intention. It's just out of not knowing. And so my goal was like, hey, how can we just with compassion, love and kindness, begin to lift the veil for other people and say this, there are more possibilities in terms of representation and experiences than the ones that you currently are familiar with. And that was always my intention from the get go, not to vilify anyone or anything. I don't think there's really anything to gain out of that, to be quite honest. 
for me, it's all about how can we share information? How can we learn? And and educating people. I mean, I, I feel that. And I mean, just the fact that you would come on this show, given that I I was not at that panel, but but I was at Yoga Journal, you know, when I would say we made somewhat of an effort, but we it just was not enough of a priority. And I could say that now looking back, but not having that like full awareness at the time. And so, yes, I mean, I see that the coalition, like, I think that's one of the things I really like about it is that it's, it feels like with the books and with the video and the website that your goal is really to educate people. That's just where it starts. And like I said, I mean, I feel like before I had my kid, before I read your books, before I started <laughs> to write my own, like I actually looked back on my own, I wrote an essay about body image a couple of years ago. I didn't even put together that that yoga was part of my body project. I just didn't even like, mm. I think I just thought I was over it or something. So anyway, thank you for that. And I think definitely like there were some efforts on our part to respond. I think it was definitely a challenge being part of an organization that was that where we constantly, because we were sort of like the big guy, we constantly felt like people were dissatisfied with us on so many levels, like not on just on the representation level, on the body image level, just like it. And I actually was thinking about this before our conversation, like what, since I've started the podcast, you know, social media has been the norm and I get so much like direct contact with my audience and emails. And I can tell people like, this is my email address, email me, or, you know, people can direct message me and I get so much just interaction. And we just, when I was there at Yoga Journal, like it wasn't, we didn't have that. Social media wasn't around yet. And right. so what we got was anyone who was annoyed enough to write us a letter. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's what we got. Like, we ne we just really didn't. Well, anyway, I, I'm speaking for myself. But so, yeah, there was a little bit of a feeling of like, we're pedaling as fast as we can. And like, we're trying to please everybody. And we're never going to please anybody anyway. So let's just keep going, you know. Right. And so I, anyway, I, I do think that there needed to be like a more collective just effort, which is what you've done. Um, and that kind of leads me just to my next question, which is, I, I've heard you say culture is created and we can recreate it, which I think is really brilliant. So how much do you think that social media can help us continue to recreate culture? And what kinds of things do you feel like you're focusing on and the coalition is focusing on in that regard? Great. That's a great question. And I'm definitely going to answer it, but I have to go back to a couple of things. Oh, sure, sure. Said. Absolutely. One is I'm also a big proponent of information diversity. And so for me, when I think about yoga journal or anything, I almost don't even want to mention them anymore because it's not even about them. Mm -hmm. But this idea that one magazine or one thing is going to be everything to all people is such a high bar and so unrealistic in the same way when Ms. Magazine came out, you know, in 1972, that somehow it was going to speak for all women and mm -hmm. appeal to all. It's just, it's not, you know, think about how many sports channels we have. Yeah. Think about, true. you know, all of these different things that, you know, I loved when the fact that there, you know, Yogurt International was there. I would love to see 
more kinds of publications looking at these issues that aren't, you know, set up to somehow be the end all be all for the Mm -hmm. entire community Mm -hmm. because it's just not possible. Uh, Jeevanette Heyman has tossed around the idea before of having an accessible yoga magazine, which to me is so brilliant, you know, because that, that already begins to change the conversation. But all of that is to say that we, we have to have some level of information diversity as well, that we can't just have one publication or one fill in the blank that somehow is going to meet all of the demands. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is at the time when you know you were talking about that, that this wasn't a priority, I'm going to be straight up. It, it wasn't really anywhere you know, that it's, it's not too shocking. It's not too odd. There have been social justice movements now that have really made huge inroads, not just in the yoga community, but if we look beyond it, for example, this past season's award shows, if we look at Mm, ways that these conversations are making their way just in the dominant culture in pop culture, that these things are going hand in hand. If we're looking at the stuff that is happening, you know, around, uh, having, you know, curvy models, even on Runner's Magazine, like the the entire culture is shifting. Mm -hmm. And for me, I had been doing that work for a very long time. But what seemed appealing to me is to go into one specific aspect of the culture, which was, hey, the yoga community is a little more, I don't know, accessible to me. It seems a little more possible here than it does to attack the entire culture. So I've been working in the larger culture and within the yoga community simultaneously. And it's very clear to me that both need to happen in order for this to happen. I don't know if it would have been enough to have our sort of, you know, voices in the yoga community to be enough now that other yoga companies and magazines are seeing that this is happening outside of yoga. I feel that gives them even more incentive to go, oh, look, okay, this really can sell. And yes, that, that does become a focal point because they oftentimes are publicly traded, you know, corporations. Yeah, yeah. And so there's just a lot going on. And given all of the other social justice work I've done, I had an understanding of how corporations work, how the media works, how, how these things need to play out. And so I have been very strategic in doing the work in multiple places in multiple ways to actually have the kind of change that we need. And I think that Anything that's happened in the past or that didn't happen in the past is, to me, no longer even an issue. I'm just more interested in, like, who's paying attention now? What are we going to be doing now? And I think that leads to your last question, which is to continue to do this work in ways that is going to alleviate the burden of truly marginalized communities. So in, in, in terms of my own experience, yes, I'm a woman, but also I'm a white heterosexual woman. You know, I am a formally educated woman. And so I take that role very seriously in terms of I want to take this role to educate people and to make change because I don't believe that that burden should fall on individuals who are dealing with multiple forms of oppression to educate others. Mm -hmm. I'll take that role on. Mm -hmm. I'll take that role on. But I'd like to alleviate others from that task, which is why, you know, in many conversations where let's say my cover model, Diane Bondi, who wrote the foreword of Yoga Rising has just been exasperated that she again, as a larger bodied woman of color has to educate 
someone on these issues, I happily step in and I do that instead, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm happy to do that and use my platform and create things that is going to, on one hand, alleviate the burden from some people while educating others. Mm -hmm. So it's a very delicate balance. And that is the work that I want to continue to do. And in terms of the coalition, it continues to operate as a force to bring people together to continue the mission of really breaking through the clutter, breaking down stereotypes so that would-be practitioners or people who don't even see themselves as a possible practitioner feel that it's a possibility because the more people that can come into mindfulness, yoga practice specifically, the better off we all are. I mean, and that comes to the collective liberation. If we can have this be something that more and more people can access and feel like, oh, this is for me. Okay, yes, this this is a place that I feel welcomed. Then just think about how incredible our society can be when mm-hmm. stress levels go down, when people feel like they have a full sense of agency, when people are comfortable in their bodies, when they are not spending their, you know, kind of finite time, money and energy on the body project, but are thinking about things related to their legacy, their story, and their contributions to their family and community that are much larger than their abs or perfecting a certain pose, that's when we actually see magic happen. That's awesome. You're so inspiring, Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm so I'm so glad to connect with you. And yeah, as you were talking, I had many things come to mind. I know that you teach media literacy. And I have a daughter and I feel like I ask this question of so many people I have on the podcast and people who don't have kids are probably like, oh, my God, (laughs) tell her to shut up already. But I'm very curious, you know, if you have any recommendations about how to educate my daughter about the images that she will undoubtedly be influenced by around her on a day to day, minute to minute basis. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of media literacy toolkits and things online. If people search, there's a lot of really great handbooks for teens and for parents that are available as well. I'm happy to provide the links um, that we can add to the show notes. But I think that one of the most important things is to ask really critical questions. That's really the basis of media literacy education is how can we begin to take the things that we're inundated with that become normal to us and to show that they're not normal, to deconstruct them by asking why was this particular message made? Who made this message? In what interest? Who benefits? What are the effects? What are the symbols and the messages embedded in this particular message? How does it make one feel? You know, just to get into all of the ways in which what we assume is just part of the atmosphere is something that has actually been created by a ton of people who have very vested interests in a profit margin and that billions with a B billions Mm -hmm. of dollars of research have gone into how to have this message be its most effective. And the most effective part means to really sell the most of fill in the blank. And if we can simply begin to understand that, we can, you know, not eliminate or diminish our enjoyment of culture because I very much enjoy it, mm-hmm. but can just be more critical consumers, more conscious consumers, so that we have a little more agency in how it makes us feel, how we see ourselves. And so I just say, get really, really honest, speak from the heart and ask 
questions. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, one of the things like I feel overwhelmed by is there's just so much information. And I, I even see, and obviously, like I, you even see this with adults, like everyone's just, we're so inundated that sometimes it can be hard to f- just filter. But mm-hmm. it sounds like teaching them to, to like cultivate discernment and to like not just look at the message, but look at the messenger and why did the messenger create this message and why uh-huh. is it this message presented in this particular way and how does it make you feel and all those things. That's helpful to me. Yeah. Absolutely. And one other thing that I'll add is in talking about all of this is to relay our own experiences, our own humanity, so that it becomes a point of connection, not a lecture. It doesn't become a judgment. It doesn't become, Hmm. you know, like a hierarchical thing, but it really becomes a heart-centered point of connection. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Do you mean like when you're actually having the conversation? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, I can definitely say that from my own experiences, my mother and grandmother, I always felt like, oh, well, everything's great for them because they they look this certain way or whatever. And no, they never really shared their own vulnerabilities, their own struggles or why they had made those decisions. I feel like there, there had been a little bit more vulnerability, which maybe that was just was not possible at the time. It would have alleviate, alleviated my own sense of shame and blame and guilt that I had, that there was something defective about me. It would have created a point of connection uh, which is not something I had until many years later in that women's studies class where I went, oh, it's not just me. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is this is a phenomenon that's much larger than myself. Having that understanding really took away a lot of the shame and blame that I carried with myself for a long time, that I, somehow I was the problem. Understanding that this was experienced by, you know, whatever issue it may be, by many people, that there were patterns and trends made me feel like, okay, great. There's a little bit of liberation from that personal shame. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I have a, a la- one last geeky sort sure. of editorial <laughs> question from an editor, which is, I think both of your books are so beautiful and well curated and well written. How much hands-on editing did you do? And, and how did you, what was the editorial process like for you? Oh my goodness. It was a, they were long projects. (laughs) And actually I'm in the process of working on a third one. And I realized that I just did not have the bandwidth to, to, to really go the distance on my own. So I called in a couple more editors. So there's four of us working on this project. And in many ways I kind of handed over the, the main reins because it is truly a labor of love. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. I was very much involved in the editorial process. The first book I did with Anna Guest Jelly, so we were doing that together. The second book I essentially spearheaded alone, but had someone assist me in terms of organization and things of that nature. But with each one, very invested in what those stories were going to be, how they all fit together, making sure if there are any discrepancies or contradictions that, you know, I would lovingly point those out to Mm -hmm. the writers, really in the interest of making their story the most clear and authentic and honest as possible. And then finally handing it over to the the editors at the publisher and letting them, you know, check things like, oh, I don't know, certain grammar things or periods, you know, but in terms of the overall storytelling process, it was very, very, very hands on. And I 
truly enjoyed it and loved it, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, yeah, yeah, a lot of emotional and energetic output. Well, I can tell that, that it was hands-on because I'm usually like, quite honestly, anthologies kind of make, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't even know if I want to open this because <laughs> they are, you know, sometimes they're not well edited for continuity and you can get like a couple great essays and then one that's just like a wild card and not total, seemingly totally unrelated to the, the theme of the whole anthology. And yours, this is not like that at all. It's, it's genuinely the newer one that I read the whole thing. Yoga Rising is just like, it's like clear as a bell. It's really lovely. Mm. So thank you. I <laughs> and listen, I really appreciate that. And again, I want to say that it was very well thought out in terms of how do these fit together? Looking at these as puzzle pieces, it wasn't even so much in terms of the individual. Mm -hmm. When I would read them, I would think about how this connected to another story or have we said this enough? And, you know, which actually is why this third book materialize because I realized, oh, there's something else coming out that that needs its own volume. Mm, yeah, yeah. So some people got pushed over to the third book. And listen, there were some some people that I couldn't fit in that originally were supposed to be in there, some stories that repeated. And I, that was very difficult to have to restructure and rearrange. It's really required to be sort of unapologetic to the mission. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that I did because they definitely flowed. Having Diane's forward was incredible. Diane on the cover, it all just kind of happened. And I will say, you know, in the middle, <laughs> it feels like a mess. And you're like, okay, wait a minute, you know, like, how is this all going to come together? And it and it did. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, I just it was meant to happen. And I really appreciated that my editors at uh, the publisher Llewellyn also had really encouraged me to add those prompts for self inquiry and calls to action. I felt that that was really great. Because the second volume the purpose was really to build on yoga and body image and to add more of a critical element as well as presenting the idea of when we can come into a place of greater peace and acceptance with our bodies and ourselves, what does that allow us to do? And that kind of comes full circle to our own conversation about it's really not just, hey, being comfortable in your body or even loving your body. This is actually really about how do we free ourselves so that we can be the biggest, brightest, most brilliant versions of ourselves and bring our uniqueness, our talents, our skills, our, you know, the incredible parts of ourselves into the world that we would normally hide or keep quiet if we were still living in a place of self-deprecation, loathing, or dissatisfaction. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. Thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for listening. I will put show notes and links to Melanie's work online at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 124. And until next week, I hope you are loving and caring or at least neutral toward your body and enjoy your practice. <laughs>